was 1899, the summer of love. I knew nothing of the Moulin Rouge, Harold Zidler, or Satine. The world had been swept up in a bohemian revolution, and I had traveled from London to be a part of it. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? And it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 140, and our movie this week was Moulin Rouge from 2001. And here to join, joining me to talk about it, because like me, he had never seen it before, Matthew Sargent. Matt, Matthew, how are you? I'm good, Travis. How are you doing? I am doing uh, all right. We are recording on a Monday, which is weird for me. I haven't recorded not on a Sunday in quite a while, um, but scheduling just worked out this way. And uh, and honestly, I needed this tonight, so um, I am very excited to talk about this movie. I'm excited to talk about it too. So, okay, you had never seen this movie before. Was there a specific reason? Are you not a Are you not a fan of musicals? Do you have some sort of a blood feud with Nicole Kidman? Um, you know. What, what what was the reason why this one kind of slipped by slipped by you? Um, I do like musicals, okay. uh, and I can't get any into any details of blood feuds I may or may not have with various Australian actresses. <laughs> um, but it was it was just one that I never got around to, um, and it turned out to be one that was kind of on my wife's list of ones that she wanted to show me. Ah. Um, and we would have gotten to it eventually, and this helped us get to see it. Well, there you go then. So kind of similar for me. I don't dislike musicals. Um, what I have found is that as the years have gone by, I realize more and more I actually kind of, I actually really like musicals. It's just that I've seen some that I, that I didn't connect with, and so it sort of made me think in my younger days, and when this movie came out in 2001... That, that I didn't like a, a musical um, outside of like a Disney movie that I would watch as a kid. Um, and so it was kind of one of those things where I didn't dismiss it necessarily, but I was like, oh, it's that it's it's a movie from the dude that made uh, Romeo and Juliet. I saw that. It was okay. I just never got around to watching it and then just sort of forgot about it for quite a while. And it, I wasn't a target audience for it, I don't think, either, which probably plays into it. Um it wasn't really aimed at the 19 to 21 year old male. Um, so, you know, it is what it is, but honestly, what I, what I, like I said, I've realized that I enjoy musicals quite a bit more and, and I'm finding them, um, much more of a thing that I can connect with as I've gotten older. And this one is an interesting one for me in the fact that it is a musical it's very much a musical. It's almost an opera. It's kind of an operetta in a lot of ways because there's as much singing as there is speaking in the entire movie. But so much of it is like uh, these kind of, um, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, not melody. I mean, it is a melody, but they're, uh, they're the collection of, of songs, popular songs, kind of all medley. Medley is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> Most of the music is is in medley form. Right. And it's and it's all a jukebox musical, so it's like all cover songs, mm -hmm. which I had not expected. I went into it kind of blind, 
Yeah. Just knowing that I had seen the trailer when it came out and it was just like, oh, this is some weird trippy looking musical. Um, and I didn't remember that it was all, I think except for like one song, it was all like popular music. Um, and and not, it, oh, go ahead. And done kind of more interestingly than other jukebox musicals I've seen. Mm -hmm. Like they covered them and like switched the styles or mashed them up together in really interesting ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will say, so there is one original song in the entirety of the movie and it wasn't even written for this movie. That's the other funny thing about it. And so it wasn't used in the movie it was written for. It was written for Romeo and Juliet also by Baz Luhrmann. Um, but the song didn't get used there and then they brought it back. They used it here. Unfortunately, it wasn't, uh, eligible to be, uh, an Oscar for best original song because it wasn't written for the movie. Um, which is a, a, a bummer. Um, but you're right. It is that jukebox musical, which I will admit as musicals go, jukebox musicals are kind of a lesser favorite of mine. I don't, I think because I love when I, when I'm watching a musical, I like to experience these songs that people write for the situations and kind of write for the story. But what this did was like you said, it mashed up these, these things and it made everything was medleys, which was not what I expected at all. I didn't expect a jukebox right. musical. I, I, I'm with you on that. I wasn't, I was expecting this to be just a straight kind of musical, maybe a, a cover here or there. Um, because I knew, at the time, the the song, the popular song on the radio, which was um, who was it? It was uh, Maya, um, Pink, and a couple of other um, Lil Kim, and uh, um, uh, I can't remember who the fourth one was. That um, were doing the the song. It was, and I knew that was a cover, but I didn't realize that all the music in this was going to be a cover. They did like a really good job of of transforming a lot of those songs. Um, in the medley that they would do them in, which I thought was really yeah, neat. Definitely. Missy Elliott, that was the other one. Yeah, when we started it, like the movie gets started and gets going, and then all of a sudden I was like, is that smells like teen spirit? Mm -hmm. In yeah. this chaos of stuff? <laughs> in this, and, and let's let's be honest, that opening is very much a cacophony of, of yes. things going on. And you're right, Smells Like Teen Spirit is in there, which in and of itself is a pretty remarkable thing because Courtney Love does not let that song get used very much. Certainly didn't back then. Uh, I think she's relaxed on it somewhat um, in later years, but she was very much against people using it. So, and that's a whole other can of worms. But um, yeah, I, I picked that one out. It was interesting to me. I loved the... Uh, the medley of love songs that they chose that you and McGregor and Nicole Kidman sing to each other on the top of the elephant because oh, yeah. they weren't love songs you would think of to put in a medley of love songs like heroes from David Bowie. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, even one more, uh, um, it's the alternate title uh, in the name of love. You too. Like, they're not songs that I would immediately think of to put in a medley of songs about lo you know love and loving someone else, but they fit so well and they were done so well that I really really dug yeah. it. So yeah, it was. I want to talk about that opening a little bit because that opening number is either going to hook you 
and keep you in this movie for the for the duration of the two hour runtime, or you're not going to make it through that opening and you're going to shut it off because you can't handle it. Because it is cacophonous is a good way to put it. Like there's a lot going on. It throws everything at you right away, and it's almost like a a, a trial by fire <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, not that that's a bad thing because I, I, the movie has a style to it. Baz Luhrmann himself has a style to his, his movies, whether it's Romeo and Juliet, Strictly Ballroom, this movie, Great Gatsby. He has a style, but what I appreciated was he's just going to be like, all right, this is what you're getting for the next two hours. Strap in and hopefully you enjoy that. And it hooked me. I'll be honest. It really did. I, I had a good time uh, right from the onset. It took me took me about half that musical number before I was like, okay, all right, I got what we're going for here. I can I can dig this. How was it for it, you? How was that for you? I don't know if it totally hooked me. Um, I I don't think I've seen any other Baz Luhrmann movies. Um, so again, going in very blindly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the opening number with all the different music and the visuals are very chaotic with a ton of like uncomfortably fast cuts. Um, and I wasn't sure how much I was going to like it, but I, I'm not a person to just shut off a movie because the intro is kind of weird or not what I expected, but, um, that wasn't my favorite part. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't call it my favorite part, but what it did was it set me up for, okay, now I understand what I'm in for. And it can, it can, yeah, definitely. It, it set my expectations right away. Like there are some, some movies will begin and give you a little bit of something. And as it goes, that movie evolves and it kind of uh, unfurls its story and it gives you what it's going on. And then it might have a twist or a change or some sort of a left turn, which can work. Other movies like this one are just like, this is what you get. Enjoy, because this is what's going to happen for the next hour and a half to two hours. And that's really what it was. And you're right. It is, that opening is chaotic. It's frenetic. It is, uh, it is a ton of energy. And uh, a phrase that I have used on the show before, and it sort of fits this, is some of it is very directionless energy, right? right? It's just like there's cuts for the sake of cutting. There's a lot of yeah. just bombastic in your face visuals that are meant to kind of not necessarily shock you, but sort of put you in a specific mindset um, is what kind of, it feels like he's going for there. And for me, it worked in getting me prepared and ready to watch the rest of this thing unfold. And what happened for me was as the movie unfolded, I went from, I like John Leguizamo a lot. I've always liked John Leguizamo, but I was prepared when he started speaking to not like him in this. Oh, yeah. Because I was sort of like, okay, this is going to be... Because I like John Leguizamo, but there are definitely times where there's too much John Leguizamo. Mm-hmm. He he turns it up to an 11, and he needs to be at about an 8, 8.5. And, and here he was sitting at that 9.5, and, and I'm like, I don't know if I can handle him throughout this movie. But what they did was, one... They didn't have, he wasn't a huge major factor throughout the entirety of the movie. So you're not like the, the thing that he's doing doesn't, um, doesn't wear thin too quickly, but then the way they thread it throughout the movie and the other characters, it worked 
none of the characters I felt like got overexposed or, or, or put on screen too much for what they were. Because really... I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, your two leads, Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman, are very straight down the middle. They're not... You know, they have a few moments that are that are kind of one way or the other, a little a little too much, but they're mostly played um, down the middle, right? They're they're sort of the every man, every woman. You're meant to kind of relate to them, and then you have all these wild characters around them. I mean, just just nutty characters in every role around Christian and Satine, and that works. And that's something that I remember Baz Luhrmann doing with, I saw, I remember seeing Romeo and Juliet, because I watched that in high school, his version of that. And it was sort of the similar thing. Claire Danes and Leo DiCaprio and that are, are Romeo and Juliet, and you're meant to connect with them, so they're very bland. They're very kind of played boring almost, but then everyone around them is just insane. And that's what this movie did too, with between John Leguizamo. I loved, loved seeing David Wenham as Audrey. That cracked me up. Uh, right in the beginning there, because this is David Wenham before he was seen in Lord of the Rings as Faramir. Right. And, and anything I else. I did not recognize him. I, it, at I first, didn't at until first. Until I went to IMDb and I was like, oh, that's that guy. Um, but the, the moment when these characters appear falling through the ceiling, yes. that's kind of what set me up. Okay. Kind of set my expectations more than the big chaotic number it's because it goes from you and McGregor typing about sad things. And then all of a sudden it's a three stooges <laughs> thing where a bunch of guys fall through the ceiling and they're making goofy jokes and there's funny sound effects. Yes. And it's like, all of a sudden this is a very different movie. That is a great way to put that. I didn't even like make a, a three stooges type connection. Um, while I was watching it, but that's a perfect way to describe that scene. Like it is very three stooges from the moment, the narcoleptic, uh, Argentinian who's played by a Polish actor, I believe falls through his ceiling until man, probably the musical number back at the, at the Moulin Rouge. Um, that whole thing is very three stooges. It's very just zany, madcap, tons of energy. Um, and, and I dug it. Like, I really enjoyed that. I, again, I thought I was going to get annoyed with John Leguizamo quickly, but I didn't. Um, he's, he's very out there, very off the wall, but it was fun. I did also like the, the effect work of making his legs look short because you could tell a lot of it was him like on his knees. And I guess he just had like a brace with like blue socks so they could digitally paint out his feet, but it looked good. It, It never looked while it always looked like it was a, a normally sized John Leguizamo, who's probably, I think five nine or something, walking around on his knees, like I bought it at the same time. So, yeah. um, and even if it's a little out of proportion, mm-hmm. that's kind of accurate because right. he's playing a real person who broke his legs and they never healed as a kid, so he was just short. Yes, in his legs. Um, and not necessarily the rest of him. Right. Yep. Yep. And, uh, I, I did enjoy, you know, um, I loved the, the, uh, like the zany look, the, the, there was the one dude that had the huge beard, but then like the middle of it was cut out. So he had like these long side pieces on his beard, 
Audrey, again, David Wenham is Audrey. He's only in the movie for a couple of minutes uh, before he gets kind of mm -hmm. upstaged by Christian and then she, Audrey, leaves. But David Wenham in that character, I thought was great for the couple of minutes of screen time um, that he gets was fun. My favorite character, the more I think about it, the further I've gotten away from ending the movie, because I watched this yesterday, and the further I get away from watching the movie and thinking about the movie more, I find that my favorite character became Ziedler, Jim Broadbent's character. Oh, yeah. And at first, he's very good. well, and, and again, at first I'm thinking, I'm not going to like this character from that opening musical. I'm like, okay, he's going to be here, but I've seen what this character is before and I'm going to get tired of him pretty quickly. And he was that guy, but not at the same time, because there's so much heart to his character that I want more of that. I actually wanted more of his story. And I almost would have liked this movie told from his perspective of seeing what all is going on because he's the only one that knows all the cards in play at one point. That's true. And, and it was just something, and I love Jim Broadman. I've loved him since I saw him in Brazil for that short little period of time. Um, obviously I, he's in one of my favorite movies ever in hot fuzz. Um, but he's one of those character actors that you get and you bring in and he can play anything from, almost sinister to like happy-go-lucky and he gets to do he gets probably the most variation on his character in this movie of anybody because he's he's out there he's crazy but he he also knows that the show must go on he's very protective of Satine um and I think that's where it was is as the movie had started I expected that he would end up not necessarily being um, any kind of a monstrous character towards her, but not having her best interest in mind and thinking of her more as kind of a, not quite an object, but not not somebody that he really cared for, just, just somebody that worked for him and you'll do what I tell you type of thing. Right. Like with at the beginning, he comes off as very much the boss guy, Mm -hmm. in charge of everybody and everybody is his like commodities. Yes. That's a good way to put it. Commodities. Um, but yeah, he does like once the, he's somehow just there and involved in inventing this show within the show. <laughs> yep. And he's like playing along and it's suddenly like, Oh, he's really into this and he cares about these people. Yes. Yep. It, it evolves. My, my viewpoint on him went from, oh, he's the boss character. And, and at some point he's going to do something that just shows that he doesn't care about them. He just wants the whatever. And, but no, he becomes like, it's his family. The show must go on, not just because of the, the financial implications of it, but because this is what all these people do. This is their life. And for him, that's that. And how protective and, and concerned he is for Satine when he finds out that she's ill and wants to hide that from her. Again, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, better communication and a lot of the problems in the movie don't happen. But then if we have the better communication, we don't have any drama. So you gotta, you gotta take one with the other, but he's, he doesn't want her to worry. So he holds that information back from her as to the full extent of what's wrong. And he holds back the information 
of kind of what the Duke wants, but then let's, you know, it goes right to her to tell her, look, the Duke is going to kill Christian if you don't go with him type of thing. Like, and so I just, I, I really, really enjoyed, there's a, there's a ton of heart to his character that as the movie went on and progressed, you know, Leguizamo uh, was the same character at the beginning and at the end, really. Um, and in right. a lot of ways, Christian is too. He doesn't doesn't change all that much. He's still the lovesick, um, idealist, bohemian uh, at the end of the movie that he was to start the movie. He just maybe is a little more world-weary. Yeah. But Broadbent's characterization, the, the characterization of Ziedler, for me, evolved over the course of the movie where at first he's like just ready to do whatever the Duke wants. And yes, 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 just because the guy's got money for him. Um, and then even in like the, the Like a Virgin medley and song bit, there's moments where he's he's genuinely concerned about what the Duke is going to do. And then the look on his face when, when he finds out that the Duke will kill Christian, knowing what he knows, he's just like there's there's this genuine concern for this guy who is nothing more than a meal ticket for him, really. That's all Christian is. But because he knows that Christian means something to Satine, it's important for him. So I just really, really, really enjoyed that. And it, I wasn't expecting it at all. I didn't even know he was in this movie until it started. Um, I knew Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor, and that was it. So, Yeah, I think that's the only people I knew who were in here also as well. And it was interesting to see different people I recognized pop up. Yeah, yeah. Um, Richard Roxburgh as uh, as the Duke, um, who he is somebody that I enjoy in just about everything I see him in, no matter how bad it is. I mean, he was in uh, two movies that I wanted to like so much that when I saw them in the theater and I did not quite get what I wanted out of them, and that is League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and uh, Van Helsing. Both of those movies, and it's not his fault, he's hamming it up in both of them, like super hamming it up, but I remember him from those movies, um, and this is another one of those where I'm going to remember him as the Duke because he's just going for it. He's got the big fake teeth. That accent he's doing is amazing. <laughs> it's such a... Yeah. I don't, I don't even know how to describe the accent that he's doing uh, exactly. Um, Dan, I, like annoying posh British. Yeah. Yeah. Kind, that, of kind of a nasally kind of a dandy almost, um, yeah. would be a way to describe it. Uh, but he's great. Like he's just, he's memorable. Everybody in this is memorable. Um, it seems like a lot of the characters, a lot of the characters we see on screen that do that have any kind of a speaking role, have a moment where they get to do something. Um, mm -hmm. uh, even the, the art, the narcoleptic Argentinian gets a whole song where he's doing Roxanne. Um, yeah. So that might've been one of my favorite songs in the movie. Like it's really, his good. really gravelly voice doing that was really cool. That was a cool, uh, song moment because we'd had like medley song, medley song. This one was two songs. It was that competing song that sometimes musicals will do, right? Where they've got two different, in this case, it's two different covers that they're kind of uh, meshing together um, at the same time. And I liked that because you, normally it's, you'll have a song 
I noticed this in a lot of musicals um, where you'll get a moment where the song has like two different melodies going on. And it's, it's usually two different people singing. A lot of times it's the um, male and female antag- uh, protagonists singing about each other. That's the, the tropey part or the tropey one is, yeah. you know, she's singing about him from her room and he's singing about her as he's walking the streets of town or whatever. Um, and it's, it's competing melodies and right. they sort of took that idea and kind of turned it where it's, it is, this guy is telling him a story in this song about, you know, never fall in love with a woman who sells her love. And he mm-hmm. is the hopeless romantic and I liked that t- kind of change on that trope, but also just the performance of it was great with that real, just gravelly, grungy, dirty voice that he's doing Roxanne in. Cause that song, it's perfect for that song. Yeah, absolutely. I almost like it better than the police version, if I'm honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I really, I, that's a good choice for, for a favorite song. Uh, it's hard. I don't know if I can say that's my, what my favorite song is in the movie. That's the problem is, I enjoyed a lot of them. Uh, I do like Come What May, uh, the the song that was written for, um, I guess, Romeo and Juliet, the the original song. Okay, um, yeah. was a really good song, and I liked how I liked how they brought it back at the end of the, the movie and the performance, which, by the way, that stage performance at the end of the, the play that they're putting on some, what is it, Spectacular Spectacular? Yeah. Um, that stage is amazing and just the the amount of work that went into making that and all the costuming and everything is just mind-blowingly cool and impressive so i uh i I very i had a really good time with this movie um and it sounds like you did kind of too um would you say that you enjoyed this i definitely enjoyed it i don't think it's my favorite it's definitely not my favorite movie or favorite musical um no but i I can't say it's definitely a very interesting experience and i was engaged with it the whole time yeah i never found myself like bored with what was going on um i never found myself you know drifting to looking at my phone or looking at uh you know another screen or anything like that i was engaged in the movie i'm with you it's not my favorite musical but i think i think that had this been more original music and fewer uh, covers that I might have appreciated that part of it more because again, jukebox musicals are not usually my, my kind of go-to as I've discovered how much I enjoy musicals over the years. I don't mind a cover song in a musical. I don't mind that because I think that's cool. I didn't even, I don't have a problem with kind of the anachronisms of having songs that came out, you know, hundred years later being used in a, in a movie set in 1900 or 1899. That doesn't bother me, but I wanted more because that original song they had come what may was so good and so powerful. I wanted more of that. I wanted more. Yeah. I, I wanted to hear that kind of stuff more because I, I really enjoy those. That's for, to me, that's what a musical is for is to give me songs that are telling the story and you can weave in a cover here and there. You can weave in a medley here and there, but that should be the exception, not the rule for me. So that's kind of where I, I fall on that. Having said that, it's a good one. Um, it, it, it's it's fun. It's definitely, though, 
I know people that would not like watching this because of the pace, because of the editing style, uh, the frequent use of of after um, after filming slow mo, the the kind of staccato, choppy slow motion that you get when you're taking a normal speed. It's not your traditional slow mo of over cranking, where because traditional slow motion, as you know, is where you you run more film through the camera. Um, was how they used to do it so that when you play back at normal speed, it plays back slower. Well, then you have the post-processing um, or what I like to call the VHS slow-mo because it was the kind of slow motion we had when I was making movies with like a Super 8, um, 8 millimeter tapes because you couldn't you couldn't overcrank those. There was no way to, to do that. So the only slow motion you could do was to slow it down after the fact and whatever you were using to edit. And so it gets that blurry, choppy thing going on. Um, I don't particularly like that as a slow motion, although stylistically it does have its place, but I feel like in some ways it felt like a lot of that was sort of after the fact that like, Oh, you know what? This would look better if we stretch this one thing out because we're going to cut a bunch instead of kind of pre-planning that slow motion moment. If that makes sense. Um, a Baz Luhrmann special. There you go. Yeah. I'm not specifically remembering any slow-mo. You said you saw it yesterday, right? I did watch it yesterday, yes. Okay. I watched it last week at some point. Okay. I probably should have tried to watch it again. Um, so some of the specifics are I'm not remembering. I do remember some weird camera choices. Like there's one spot where during like a big dance sequence, it plays and then just reverses and then plays again. Yes. Like the same two seconds. Mm -hmm. I was like, that was weird. Did you need an extra second? (laughs) Yeah. And that's where it feels like they were kind of. So, all right. uh, Last week's movie that I covered was This is Spinal Tap. And that was a movie that is a documentary style. And that movie was made in the editing bay, right? Because they, they shot something like hundreds of hours or a couple of hundred hours worth of footage or whatever it was. Um, I don't remember the exact number, but they shot a lot of stuff just as a documentary and then cut it together afterwards. This feels like it went in the other direction. Like they had either a shortened uh, production schedule or I don't know the story behind it, but it felt like they were stretching a few things out for the musical numbers. Like they just either didn't have enough footage or what they had, they wanted to to stretch out and use a little bit more. Because I did, I noticed that exact shot you're talking about, where there was a dance move, something something where somebody got like dropped or laid down or or sat down or something, and you see it kind of go forward, and you can tell they stopped it and then reversed it, and yeah. that was very. No- I only saw it once, but it was really noticeable. But the rest of the time, there aren't like specific shots that were slow mo. It was just a lot of that editing. It was very quick paced editing, but then there would be shots that are kind of that blurry, choppy slow motion mixed in there. And it just felt like it felt like if they had taken more time in the principal photography and said, okay, we want to have that feel going on, um, that they would have done, they would have mixed that up and had a little more of that. And again, it's probably just Baz Luhrmann's style um, to do that and kind of make it in the edit. It feels very uh, music video style, I think, is was the way that I would put it. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, like, 
I want a little variation, a little, little change up. Having said that again, the style of this movie, the visuals of it, um, while it's obviously all shot on stages, um, it's mostly indoors and even the outdoor stuff you can tell is like the few shots that are actually to be, to be set outdoors are still on a soundstage. I really like the way it looked. I like that kind of stylized look that they had for everything. It mostly takes place in what? Probably two locations. I think it's inside yeah. the Moulin Rouge and then in his apartment, her apartment, which is, I guess, above, maybe above I think that. I hers, it, the elephant apartment that she has is like in the courtyard in mm-hmm. front of the Moulin Rouge. Yes. And his apartment is across the street from that. So it's just this yeah, everything's, block of buildings. Everything just happens to be right around that, that same neighborhood uh, in Paris. Um which they use that shot of Paris a lot, that pullback shot yep. uh, showing the Eiffel Tower, um, yeah, quite a bit, uh, which is fine. But I, I did, I did enjoy that visual like feel because it felt like it was it was indicative of watching a stage performance, the way the movie was filmed. Um, yes, which very much obviously is a stylistic thing. I I love that right from the beginning when the the curtains open up and they've got the 20th Century Fox fanfare. And the guy, yeah. the guy conducting everything, I was like, okay, all right, so I can see what we're doing. And throughout the whole thing, that's how it felt to me. It felt like I was watching in a in a performance hall, um, which fits the story really well too. So, I mean, yeah. I'm not going to fault that. Um, so you mentioned how it's not really your favorite musical. Just looking uh, at what what are some of your favorite musicals? What are what are the types of musicals that uh, when you watch them, you kind of are drawn to? It's a good question. <laughs> Cause there are, there are a few different styles um, that I noticed. Like Disney obviously does a lot of the Broadway style musicals. They really kicked into when they were doing um, uh, from, uh, from little mermaid on. Right. So you got your little mermaid, yeah. beauty and the beast, lion King. Um, prior to that, the movies they did that were kind of musical based weren't really that same sort of br- I guess they kind of had a little Broadway musical to them, but like Cinderella, Snow White, um, uh, Sleeping Beauty would have songs, but they weren't quite the same type of musical that they would go to later on in the Disney Renaissance. Uh, And then Disney kind of moved away from that a little bit with some of their things. Um, I don't know. I grew up watching a lot of Disney movies and I always enjoyed that music. Um, it just occurred to me something I have called my favorite musical before that is also a jukebox musical technically mm-hmm. is the blues brothers. Um, yeah. Which is not at all the traditional musical. No. Um, but just these, this band playing songs here and there through this bizarre adventure. Yeah. Which is actually a movie I covered just recently. Um, and right. And yeah, it, I forget sometimes how musical that is. Like I know it because it's the Blues Brothers and they're a band, but you forget like, oh yeah, there's the whole music scene that takes place in the music store with Ray Charles and yep. then the one with Aretha Franklin in the restaurant. And like that's straight up Broadway style, like, you know, um, dance number musical. Uh, and, and you don't, but when you think of musicals, the blues brothers doesn't come to mind, but it really is. You're right. 
Um, right. You know, I think of stuff like uh, some of the older ones I've seen, uh, White Christmas and The Sound of Music and West Side Story. Of those three, give me West Side Story and you can keep the other two. Um, okay. I'm not a big White Christmas pick, fan. Okay. I would pick probably Sound of Music out of those. Um, White Christmas is all right. West Side Story, I think I saw once in high school and have very little memory of it. Um, but Sound of Music has always been very memorable to me and has good songs that well, Sound are of memorable. Yeah, Sound of Music is very iconic. Um, and yes. I have nothing against it. I, I don't have a problem with it. White Christmas, I have some bad memories of, but it's less the movie and more of like I had somebody who was like, you have to watch this movie and kind of sat me down and forced me to. And uh, it just, I didn't connect with it um, like I would have. Uh, I mean, West Side Story I saw in high school. I've seen again since then. It's kind of one of those stories that I really enjoy. Um, I'm looking forward to the Steven Spielberg uh, version that's coming out next year, yeah. I think. Uh, I finally saw a full trailer for that, and it actually looks pretty good. Um, I was yeah. I was rather impressed. Uh, we'll see how the actual movie is but you never know um you know and obviously there's stuff like hamilton uh rocky horror picture show is another one that might be one of my favorite musicals as kind of a rock opera musical um just because that movie is just just fun like it's just crazy and and i think i think that's what does it for me is i like a musical to just go for it because the idea of a musical production is so outlandish to real life that I want right. it to just, just go for broke. You know, I want the goofy, like out of nowhere, we're going to start a song. The, the Aretha Franklin moment in, uh, in blues brothers is a perfect example of that, where she just starts singing. And then the random people in the restaurant get up and start doing a dance number with her. Like that to me is a musical and that's, what's fun. Yeah. And they do always require that sus suspension of disbelief mm -hmm. of like all these random people are such talented dancers and singers. <laughs> yes. Why are they so sad about being poor? They could <laughs> get jobs in show business. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, there was a great uh, series that ran on YouTube for quite a while from Cracked called After Hours. And they had an entire episode where they were talking about movie universes that you would want to live in. And someone said living in the, in, a, in the universe of movie musicals would be really weird because mm -hmm. are, you the are you the protagonist or the antagonist or whoever that has the talent and the dancing? Or are you just some schmuck who happens to be on the street and doesn't get involved? You're the guy that literally isn't even part of the chorus. You're the one that like walks off frame when the, when the song starts because you, you don't have that ability. Like, but yeah, I, I love that suspension of disbelief and just kind of going for it. Amy in the chat brought up uh, the Muppet movie as possibly her favorite musical. Oh. And boy, that's a good one because yeah. the Muppets and music um, Muppet, uh, the, the Muppet Christmas Carol is one of my favorite versions of a Christmas Carol because of the songs. Um, mm. It adds a certain layer to it, but I, I like musical theater in general. Um, I, I need to do that more. There's a great playhouse in my, my town. I don't live in a very large town city at all but there's a great playhouse with a with a very vibrant kind of local 
play theater community and I need to go see more of their stuff because they're amazingly talented people. Um, yeah. And every show I've gone to has been great. But yeah, I love musical theater. So it's like, it's one of those things I, I feel like I should like musical movies more and some of them, I don't know, like I didn't, I did not connect with uh, the most recent version of Les Mis, let's say, or uh, Phantom of the Opera. Um, I have not seen Cats, but I, I'm afraid to because it did not look good. Um, so, you know, it's it's one of those like the, the modern movie musicals, they do go for it. They do get kind of crazy, but I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the casting. Maybe that's what it is. Because I feel like it's it can be hit or miss. Like Russell Crowe, he might have a recording contract. He he's he's a phenomenal actor. I don't like his singing voice, and so I don't connect with that. Ewan McGregor, however, I thought had a really great singing voice in this. Yeah, he sounded really good. I'm not sure I've seen him in anything where he sang before, so it was kind of. I'm trying not, to think. Not a surprise because I knew he was in a musical, so he must be able to sing, but it was cool to see him sing yeah. so well. I'm trying to think of of something else he sang in before that I've heard, and I can't think of it. But at the same time, like he's really he's good. And and he's a phenomenal actor anyway. I, I enjoy him in so many things, whether he's playing good guy of all good guys, Obi-Wan Kenobi, or he's Black Mask in uh, the Harley Quinn movie, uh, Birds of Prey. Mm. He's he's great on either side of that. He he can just do all that. But this was one of those. He's playing that love struck. You know, the he. How many times does he say like love is like oxygen? And he's got that hopeless romantic thing going on. And that that can be a character that gets tiresome uh, if it's yeah. done wrong. He nails it. He does such a good job with it. And I think it's because he's just got a charm to him that he can pull that off. Um, there's still a thing there, like within the love story that I've seen in other musicals where it's just kind of like they fall in love because they're there together. Mm -hmm. And there's not a ton of reason beyond that. Oh yeah. It's very, it's very much. Yeah, it's the convoluted kind of Broadway Hollywood falling in love. Yeah. Um, like, so you said you're from a small town. I live yeah. in Chicago. And last month I took my wife to go see Rent. Okay. In Broadway in Chicago. And even that is like well done and impressive as that show is. They still have like one or two of the love stories in there that are just like, well, we saw each other. I guess we're in love now. Yeah. And I like, I get it in the terms of a movie universe, right? There, there's another suspension of disbelief because yeah. while I think that infatuation can happen at first sight, absolutely. Um, love at first sight is trickier and, but it's also going to be a really boring story to tell if it's the six months to a year that people get to know each other and fall, you know, fall for each other and find out about each other. So they got to move things along a little bit so I can suspend that disbelief, but their feeling for each other feel felt real. Like their chemistry was great. I thought 
Um, and I have I have liked Nicole Kidman as an actor for quite a while. The movie that really um, made me think of her as just a really good actor was actually The Others um, when I saw that in theaters. I don't know if you remember that movie where she... I've seen that. It's a good movie. I don't want to spoil anything for it because it is kind of a, a bit of a mystery. Um, but she she moves into a house with her kids and then there's ghosts um, and, okay. and paranormal shenanigans happen. But she's really good in that. Um, I kind of wish I had seen this 15 or 20 years ago when it came out because she's really good in there. And both of them play that part. And again, we I sort of touched on it earlier where they're meant to be somebody that you can relate to. So they're going to be a little more bland. They're not going to be as outlandish of a character, but the depth of, of the story of the two of them was great because she wants desperately to be thought of as a real actress is what she keeps saying. And I liked that. I liked her story. And then there's people around her that care about her, but they, they care about her almost too much to the point where they're keeping information from her. Um, right. And the whole thing where it's like you're dying, but we're not going to tell you, and the doctor's not going to tell you either. Seemed weird to me. Yeah. Although I guess at that time it wouldn't necessarily be too weird to. The doctor only speaks to the man of the house. Right. All the issues. Yeah, I. Uh, but I, I enjoyed her. I enjoyed her performance. I love that both of them did their own singing. Um, yeah. I think most of the singing was done by the actors Um, with the exception of, I did read a trivia thing where one of, I think it was in the like a virgin song, Jim Broadbent's voice was dubbed for another singer, but um, I think overall it was the actual actors doing it. And I enjoyed that um, because, and they were all good. I think that's, that's the thing is, when you can tell it's obviously a dubbed voice singing wise, it's fine. Like for instance, again, Rocky horror picture show just did a few weeks ago. Most of that was everybody singing it because they were part of the stage production, except for the guy who played Rocky in it. Uh, the Rocky horror, they dubbed his voice in because he wasn't a, a, he wasn't a singer and he wasn't really an actor. He was just a model. Um, but it was painfully obvious that they did that. And if you were making that today, you would find somebody who could look the part as well as hopefully be able to sing. Um, but it's, it, it, it's always great when you get somebody cast that you don't expect to be a singer. I didn't expect either Kidman or, or McGregor to be good singers necessarily, but they're obviously they're cast in musicals. So it's like, all right. Um, and they were good. They were both really good. Uh, so I, I appreciate that. Um, and I just, I just enjoyed this movie. I had a good time with it. And that's, I think what it comes down to is I had a good time watching this movie. Um, it's not a, it's a sad story. It's a heartbreaking story, especially with how everything ends with her succumbing to her tuberculosis. Uh, even though they don't call it that in the movie, they say consumption. That's, that's what it was. Um, and it's sad how that, they tell you that that's going to happen. Yes. In like the first five minutes. So you you know what's going to happen. You kind of forget about it with everything else that's happening. Sure. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. Um, it's a sad ending. But yeah, it's a, it's a downer of an ending. Uh, it's a bummer for him because, you know, here's Christian who goes through 
all this stuff and and then right at the end he finally gets her uh he he professes his love they have their big big moment and they don't even get to enjoy it and i think that's the gut punch of it is everything builds to that moment and then it's immediately taken away from him and 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 her life is taken from her and you know, here's uh, Ziedler who just lost not only his star attraction, but uh, somebody who he considers a child of his. I mean, the way that he looks at her and the way that he is protective of her like she is his child, he watches her collapse on stage and all of the people involved in that. That's so heartbreaking and such a gut-wrenching moment. And, and it was for, for Ziedler also, on top of that, he's losing his business too. Mm-hmm. Because at the end, it all shuts down. So it's kind of bleak for everybody involved. Just like there's no no more theater, nothing to do. Christian can just write the story, and that's just what he's doing at the end. Yeah. I mean, he gets some positive out of it in being able to tell the story, but man, is that uh, just a bummer for everyone involved. And And I think, too, the other thing is we don't, we see him the however long later because the the story starts a year prior, but I don't really get a sense of how long they were working on the play and then the opening night before we come to present time. So the whole the whole of everything takes place over a year, but has it been six months? Has it been a month? Has it been three months? Uh, did they do all of this in three months? Like I don't know, but we don't get the fallout from any other characters either. We don't see the other Bohemians and where they are, the other, the other burlesque girls and where they are, the, the Diamond Dogs, which is a great name for a troupe of burlesque dancers, by the way. The Diamond Dogs is awesome. Yeah. We don't see the fallout with, with Ziedler. We don't see what happened to the Duke afterwards. I kind of want to know more. I almost, again, I almost want this story told from Ziedler's point of view. Mm-hmm. And... I would even take a version uh, that was told from, um, and I cannot remember the character name from John Leguizamo's point of view. Toulouse Lautrec. That's it, Toulouse. Um, like I, I wouldn't mind like like competing versions of this story being told from these other points of view because I, I feel like they would be widely wildly different versions of the story, with the same events happening. And to yeah. me, that's a fascinating idea. Um. And I, I kind of, I just want to see that because I'd love to see like, how does Ziedler see Christian as a character? What is his interpretation of what that person is? And what is his interpretation of Satine and his interpretation of um, the Duke and so on? Because we're getting all of this from Christian's point of view. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe we see another version of this story and the Duke doesn't have the same kind of uh dandy uh overly posh annoying accent it's more subdued or he doesn't have the big fake teeth right because he's not he's not the the competition so um you know i i just i i think that's kind of a cool idea and i wish we could have seen some of that yeah that would have been interesting i don't know i these are the things that roll through my head as i'm watching stuff like this like Oh man, I want to watch it from, but I think a lot of that is just because I love Jim Broadbent so much. And so mm-hmm. I just want a whole movie that focuses on him, uh, for that matter, Satine's point of view. Um, or I think it would be kind of cool to see it from 
the point of view of one of the other dancers because that's another so so Ziedler's story again he has the most variation throughout the movie but there's also so much of his story we don't know that I think would be interesting to hear at the same time the other dancers in the at the Moulin Rouge I'm very interested to know kind of their stories in relation to Satine yeah, there was the one yes. who kind of screws it all up, but mm. we don't really know why. Exactly. Like, and and She that's... just shows up and she gives it away. And it seems like almost there's a couple scenes missing. Yes, it does feel like that. For, for this to be a two-hour long movie, to feel like there's something missing there, because why would she tell the Duke that unless there's some kind of jealousy going on or some reason for that? Otherwise, did she... Did she not approve or not like the fact that here's Satine who already gets all the attention and now she's, you know, she this this girl who I can't remember that character's name. Um, I'm sure they said it somewhere, but that's one I definitely can't remember. But did she find out about their relationship and didn't like the fact? Um, you know, what was the reasoning behind her? Because you're right, she gives that all away. That scene is going along swimmingly and the Duke is all in. He's He's committed... Everything's working in, in everyone's favor. And then she says that to the Duke, which gets his gears turning. And it throws everything. Again, I, I get it from the point of we're writing a story. We've got to have the drama. We've got to have something happen. But why? Why did she have to do that? Why couldn't it have been, you know, you could have had it be Ziedler who found out and said something. Uh, I'm glad they didn't go that route because I do feel like that would have been also a very tropey way to go. But then... I just, I want to know, you're right. I want to know why she did that. And so that's where I think seeing the story or even part of the story, even, even having something where it's like a certain, a certain subset of this story being told from multiple points of view, kind of a Rashomon way of doing it, I think would be kind of neat because, because again, that frenetic, chaotic, kinetic style, how would that play differently for each person that's telling the story? Yeah. So I wonder if that style would get, if it would be almost too much if you were adding so many points of view on top of that. Like if they would have to pull back a little bit to not I make would, it yeah, too overwhelming. I would think so. I mean, for one, you'd have to tell a much smaller slice of this story itself, which this. The movie itself is about two hours, just over two hours long. Um, you could, with a trim here and a trim there, kind of bring it down a little bit under two hours without losing any of the story or or really any of the songs. Um, but in order to tell multiple viewpoints, you would have to trim that story down even further. And so it would end up being kind of one slice of the story unless you did it in some sort of a seri- serialized format. I just, I'm just i just interested in more in what was going on in this world. I think because it's so stylized and it's so hyper-realistic uh, and, and unrealistic at the same time, like, I just want I want to like live in that a little bit more and kind of just get to know it, get to know these other ancillary mm-hmm. characters and these, these non-Christian and Satine characters and see what, what's going on with them because I also found them very fascinating. Yeah. Because um, there's also the the guy who comes and like rescues Satine at the end. 
who's kind of the opposite of the dancer who spoiled everything. Like he's there the whole time, but he just shows up as the hero. Um, Le Chocolat. Oh yeah. Yes. That was another character. Like he just showed up while, uh, and that, by the way, that scene also kind of rough. Um, because, because it's set up for, okay, she's going to go to the Duke and she's going to do this, this thing with the Duke. And, and there's all the tension between her and Christian about her even going to spend the night with the Duke in the first place. He's not super happy with it, but he relents because he knows it's the best choice. She doesn't really want to do it, but she also knows it's the the best choice for everyone involved. She gets there, and then as that scene starts unfolding, I'm getting more and more uncomfortable because I'm like, oh no, oh no, I can see where this is going. I see the writing on the wall, and I don't like it. I don't want I don't want that to happen. I don't want it to happen to her. I've I've become more sensitive to scenes involving assault like that as I get older too, just because it's mm-hmm. and, and it's supposed to. You're not supposed to feel comfortable watching that. I get that, right? Um, but it's like uh, no, I know, no. And then you know the Duke just gets clocked by yeah. Le Chocolat out of nowhere. And it's like how did he know to do that? How did he know to be there? What's the story behind that? I want to know more. <laughs> so yeah. And like as uncomfortable as that scene is, it provides an interesting like reflection of the earlier scene where Satine is trying to seduce Christian. Yes. When she thinks he's the Duke mm-hmm. and she's just being like super over the top so much that it's uncomfortable to watch, but in a different way. Yes. Um, yes, because at that point, you the know, Duke shows up and messes that up. Yeah. Now, now the difference I think between the two because both are uncomfortable, uh, but they're uncomfortable for different reasons, and in Very part, <laughs> and in part because in the earlier scene it's uncomfortable to watch because she's going so far over the top and so unrealistic in her reactions to him, and mm-hmm. it's uncomfortable because of that. But more in like a train wreck way of like, oh man, this is cringy, but I kind of can't look away from it. But she is in power there. She is in control of that situation. And even though Christian has no control of that situation, he is in no danger either. He just is confused by what's going on. Uh, It also Mm -hmm. did have some of the best innuendo dialogue uh, that I've heard in a while. Um, And then the later scene with her is it's not just that she is uh, doesn't have the control in the situation that the Duke does, but her not having that control there is also dangerous for her. Right. And, and there are terrible repercussions that could happen because of that. Whereas the worst thing that was going to happen to Christian in that moment was awkwardness and then him run out. Um, and while it would be right. terrible, it's not, it's not the same type of an assault. Um, I wouldn't even call what she did earlier really, an assault so much as like, I don't know, because, because that it was, was that it was, was the all, mistaken identity thing. Right. It was a, a miscommunication. Yeah. Um, that was more of a, a farcical scene. Yes. And then, there you go. which just like, they're very, they're reflections, but very opposite of one another. The two scenes. Yes. Plus the earlier one does end with a great musical number where they act That's out the true. play for him. Uh, so that was great. 
I love that as as things yeah. broke down and more and more people showed up and just that that musical number just kept growing. It, it killed yeah. me. Oh, I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. I really, I just, I like this movie. Now, this was one you said earlier that your wife, <coughs> pardon me, uh, was a, a very important movie for your wife and she wanted to watch that with you. So I assume you watched it with her? Yes. And was she pleased with how you reacted to it? That's important yeah. information to know. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Excellent. Uh, she enjoyed watching it again, enjoyed watching my reactions to different parts of it. Yeah, I think she good. had a good time. Well, good. And I'm glad that you got to not only see this movie uh, for the first time, which is always a fun thing. Again, I love sharing movies with people, uh, and I was seeing it for the first time myself. But I like the fact that it was something that, that you could do with your wife as well, and something, you know, a movie that was important to her that you finally had a chance to watch. And like, this was just sort of, you know, yet another excuse to, okay, let's do it. Let's, let's watch the movie finally. Um, so yeah. I'm glad this was the one we picked, uh, to do. <laughs> Cause I think it worked yeah. out well. Several of the suggestions I gave to you movies I hadn't seen were ones that were on her list ah. of like, these are ones you still need to see and we'll see them at some point. Uh, so she helped me come up with that list. Well, I have to say she's got some good taste in movies. So you can, you can definitely let her know that I said that. Okay. Um, but yes, I, this was fun. Uh, this was a great conversation, but I'm really glad that you got to see this and you enjoyed it. Um, because again, like I said, I know people that would not take anything out of this or they would, they wouldn't, I know some people that just wouldn't even made it through this movie. Like it would have been too Mm -hmm. much for them. I, not only did I enjoy this, I enjoyed this more than I thought I would. I was pleasantly surprised. As it started, I got the expectation of, okay, this is what I'm getting into. I'm hooked. Let's see how it does. The movie got better the further along into it I got. And the more time that goes from when I finished watching it to now, I'm appreciating more and more about it. And I do want to see it again uh at some point and just sort of like take it in again from another perspective, from another point of view. So I think for me, that's Go ahead. It'd be interesting going into it again, knowing what to expect. Yes. Yeah. I know what to watch for instead of like all of a sudden, all this stuff just hits you. (laughs) Yeah. And you're just like, all right, let's go. I think, I think that opening number alone would be amazing to watch a second time because now I'm not just being, you're, you're almost assaulted by that opening. Like it almost, it just comes out and just smacks you in the face left and right, uh, with, with visuals and mu- and music. And it's loud too. It's not subtle in any way. This movie is about as subtle as a running chainsaw. And honestly, I love that about it, but it would be very cool to watch it again. It's almost like watching it again would be like going to a theater and seeing the production of it, but sitting in a different part of the theater and seeing it from a different angle. Yeah. And you're going to see you yeah. see a few things differently than you did before, which to me is the mark of a good movie. Um, a, a good piece of art is something that you can come back to and you can watch and appreciate in different ways when you see it over and over. Uh, it's just that sometimes you got to get that first viewing has to be something that, that captures your attention. And mm-hmm. this one definitely did. So very, very cool. Uh, and thank you so much for being on. This was a ton of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad we get to see this together and discuss it yes and and 100 welcome back anytime we'll we'll go through that list of movies that your wife has and we'll we'll check a few more off there for you so you can 
have a nice movie night with her and then talk with me about it afterwards. <laughs> so that sounds great. Well, Matthew, where, where can people find you or anything that you're working on or any kind of projects that you do? Um, is, is there a place to find that? Um, so I am an illustrator. Okay. Uh, and you can find my work at skippinginfinity.com. Um, and I am at skipping infinity on Instagram and Facebook uh, and MB Sargent on Twitter because skipping infinity is too long mm. for Twitter. Um, and I do all kinds of stuff. I've been last month. I was posting all of my inktober stuff around and I'm still slowly working on that. Didn't quite get it done. Um, and I'm also almost done with my third fantasy coloring book, Ooh. which is full of D and D characters that I've drawn. Um, and that should be coming out by the end of this month. Um, and I think we just got a uh, newsletter sign-up thing set up on my site. So if you go to skippinginfinity.com slash newsletter, you can sign up for that and make sure you find out when Excellent. my next book comes out. Very cool. And these are hard like hard copy books or digital or yeah. both? Oh. Uh, paperback. Single awesome. side printed, so you can use markers and stuff. Oh, High cool. quality coloring books. Love it. That is awesome. Definitely check that out. Skippinginfinity.com. Go check that out. Well, Matthew, this has been a treat. Um, I'm really glad we got to do this. We'll do it again for sure. Um, pardon me. And uh, so normally I record the show on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Uh, we shifted that around uh, to meet your schedule, which is perfectly fine. It's a Monday night. Uh, the show comes out as a podcast on Wednesdays, and you can find that at tvstravis.com. I did recently finally, finally put the show on Spotify. So if Spotify is your your kind of podcast player of choice, the show's now there. Um, it just wasn't because I had never gotten around to listing it there. Um, my my podcast sort of uh, RSS feed generator didn't do it automatically and I just never did it. So I fixed that. You can find it there now. Um, if you do listen to it on Spotify or if you can take them, uh, take a moment and um, leave a rating and a review, especially uh, if you like the show and you want to leave a five star, that makes things more discoverable and more discoverable um, for people who, who don't know about this show and maybe want to find out about it or just spread it word of mouth. If you, if you do like the show, um, I am on Twitter at TV's Travis, and I will talk to people about, uh, anything, pop culture, movies, music, TV shows. Um, obviously I, I do this show. I also do a show called let's watch Highlander and we talk about, uh, Highlander, the series and, and other things, uh, immortals related. So if you like that, um, check that out at anchor.fm slash let's watch Highlander. So next week, uh, I have, um, cheap seats reviews is coming on and we are going to talk about, and I need to find this because I want to remember what movie it was we were going to do in a few weeks. I have JF Dubo coming back, uh, and he and I are going to talk about attack the block. And I'm really looking forward to that because that's a movie that I've wanted to watch for a while. And it's got uh, John Boyega in it, which is great. Next week, I am talking with Cheap Seats Reviews. We are going to talk about his first time. It's Sean and seeing Leon, the professional from Luc Besson, starring John Renault. Um, I haven't seen this one in a while. so. Uh, but I remember really enjoying it uh, when I was younger. Now I have some different takes on Luc Besson 
uh, in the last year or two as I've learned more about him. But I'm still curious to see how the movie holds up. Plus, it's got Gary Oldman in it. And how do you go wrong there? So, um, but yeah, that's what's coming up next week is Leon, the professional. So come on back for that. But Matthew, once again, thank you so much um, for coming by. Skippinginfinity.com. Definitely check that out. And uh, we'll do this again sometime. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So until next week and Leon the Professional, um, remember to enjoy your movies and, uh, you know, be excellent to each other. All right. to do it standing. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>